look, AI is not going to replace jobs. AI is going to actually create more jobs because we're going to find more things we can do with the data that we're collecting, uh, with the services that we can provide. We haven't even begun to scratch the service on how we can provide additional services and capabilities to constituents, to citizens. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And we are, of course, sponsored by the Government Finance Officers Association, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and Build America Mutual. I'm Justin Marlowe, and I'm joined, as always, by my intrepid co-host, California native, current Maryland resident, fiscal policy expert, and all-around just awfully interesting person, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Well, thanks, Justin. And we are uh, recording this the the week of the Thanksgiving holiday. And I actually I have a question for you. I feel like this is like one of those everyone's in one camp or the other question. But in terms of holiday music, do you start playing it before Thanksgiving? Or do you wait until Thanksgiving's over? Yeah, I'm I'm definitely in the latter camp on that. (laughs) And that's and, and not because I dislike it or try to limit it for me. Uh, it's easy to get burned out on holiday music, mm, and I, and I mm-hmm. found that the the capacity for it is is about like four weeks or thereabouts, like just a, just <laughs> time from the end of Thanksgiving through the New Year. That's so that's more of a self preservation thing uh, than than anything else. In fact, my my daughter and I have a tradition of on the ride to school on the Monday after Thanksgiving. That's when we officially start the the holiday playlist for the ride to school. It's been that way since for I guess about a decade now. So we have strict rules on these things. <laughs> Because we're very much in the latter camp. How about yourself? Oh, same thing. Uh, yeah, it's not even a, a burnout factor. It's just I have these crazy rules that I make up for myself, and that is one of them. <laughs> 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 so I also don't want to insult Thanksgiving. It's my husband's favorite holiday. So <laughs> it, 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 sure, it sure feels like it has been uh, getting getting less and less time and attention as of late, as the uh, <laughs> as the, uh, the the rest of the holidays seem to start sooner than sooner and sooner. Well, um, yeah, very important. I'm glad we glad we were able to get that on the record. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of of playlists and uh, computer assisted uh, tasks of all sorts, that's a terrible transition, but it's the best <laughs> I can come up with on the fly. We're talking uh, today about cybersecurity and AI in state and local government and the financial implications therein of the particularly the intersection between cybersecurity and generative artificial intelligence. We're really fortunate to have Morgan Wright, who is an expert on all these things, including uh, and also a senior fellow at the uh, Center for Digital Government and has some really, really interesting thoughts to share on everything from the the scope of cybersecurity and the role of generative AI in potentially helping to address some cybersecurity concerns, as well as what all of that means for public money, given the variety of investments we'll need to make, the way it will affect how we staff services lots and lots of really broad implications. And so we're thrilled to have such a, a great expert talking about all of these things. Liz, we've talked uh, on a couple occasions on on this podcast about everything from the finance AI intersection to cybersecurity to generative AI. When you think about how we pull all those threads together, how we weave mm. you know all of that into one uh, sort of coherent topic, what's, what's on uh, top of mind for you? coherent topic is is a is a challenge because there are so many over overlapping um you know pieces of this so we're in terms of ai it's like the 
best thing and it's also the worst thing for in terms of cybersecurity and local government. I mean, like there's so many great things it can do, but at the same time, it can also, you know, go to the dark side and uh, and get all Darth Vader on you or Anakin Skywalker, I should say. Mm. <laughs> um, there we go. I think that's the first Star Wars reference, by the way, <laughs> perhaps. Well done. <laughs> Thank well you. Done. A whole new fan base we can tap into now. <laughs> Um, so there's that sort of, you know, possibility with AI and, and the other thing I think about too, is specifically in terms of finances, when we were, when we were at JFOA earlier this year, the conference in, in Portland, Oregon, it, it came up a lot. And, and actually recently AI has been like coming up in the conversations I have with finance people. And I think the connection there is just in terms of that, that auditor, um, and just really staffing shortage in general. And it's everybody knows AI can help them with that. And there's been a lot of talk around AI being able to take care of some of those really kind of menial tasks that you actually don't need critical thinking for and allowing humans <laughs> to do the critical thinking. So there's a lot of talk around that. And I think we're going to see some exciting things in the next few years with that. But, but right now, I think everyone's just kind of, you know, trying to, trying to figure that part out. Definitely. And the fears are, are very real, particularly from a finance perspective, right? Given we've talked often on this podcast about those human capital concerns. And if generative AI is in fact a, a potential solution to some of those concerns, then it does raise the question of if you have the incentive to cut costs and you have the tools to help you cut costs, then do people find themselves caught in the crossfire? And, and there's those are fair concerns. I think the thing that we're certainly hearing and that we've heard from lots of folks who are operating in the local government space, especially as they say, you know, the, the, I wouldn't call it an old adage, but the watchword in the space is your job won't be replaced by AI, but it might be replaced by a human who's really savvy at using AI. And so it definitely gets at the mandate that I think we have in state and local finance, understand what this technology means for how we operate, where it can add value, where it can be a problem. And fortunately, we have a great guest on today to help us move that conversation along. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Morgan Wright, who is Chief Security Advisor at Sentinel One and also a fellow with the Center for Digital Government. Morgan, welcome to the Public Money Pod. Well, you thank me now. Wait till this is over. You might want to retract your invitation. <laughs> no. Cybersecurity can always be, can be a little depressing. <laughs> depending on. The only time you hear about cyber is when something bad's happening. Nobody goes out with the press release and said, we just installed MFA. Look at us. We're cool. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's not the sort of thing that gets covered in the, in the local paper. Can you uh, try not to depress us, but can, can you give us sort of the, like, where are we at right now in terms of any progress with state and local government cybersecurity? I mean, every time I Google cybersecurity, I, I find out about the latest uh, cyber attacks, but are there any kind of moving trends there? Are there emerging threats and things that we're not thinking about? Yeah, you know, uh, at the Center for Digital Government, um, we were just talking about with Justin, um, I remember doing a research project a while back and looking at uh, what are the top initiatives, you know, in state and local government and cybersecurity was either first or tied for first. You know, it, it still remains a large topic of discussion and for good reasons. You know, when ransomware is not going anywhere, it's not like a fad or anything. Ransomware, there are more attacks happening. The extent uh, and the the money that they're asking for, the impact, now it's double extortion. So, hey, if you don't pay the money, we're going to release information. So those trends seem to be going. And look, the other thing too, a big trend we see is around the area of uh, 
digital identity. You know, when you look at the MGM hack that just happened, the ransomware that attack that happened, it happened because somebody got onto LinkedIn, look, found an employee, was able to get in enough information about that employee to call the help desk, impersonate that employee, get either a password reset or the ability to get into the system. So as we say, hackers don't break in anymore, they log in. So we've seen the issue identity, I think, um, not being addressed as aggressively as I think it should. The other thing too, we're seeing some things that come out of, and when I say we, not only Sentinel-1, but Center for Digital Government, you know, when you look at the state, what's going on out there, a lot of these conflicts that are going on in the world, when you look at Russia, Ukraine, when you look at Israel, Hamas, when you look at what's going on in the South China Sea uh, with China and Taiwan, a lot of cyber weapons are being developed, even though they're being used um, by nation state actors, they end up in the hand of transnational criminal groups. So we're seeing the weaponization of some of this malware end up in criminal groups that are then using uh, the R&D money for free from these nation states and then turning this into things that they can attack state and local. So you might be able to withstand attack from a traditional you know, transnational criminal group or ransomware group. Very few people could survive a sustained resourced attack by a nation state actor, somebody like the likes of China, say, or Russia, who've got top tier expertise. So that's kind of some of the things that we're seeing as terms of what's the impact out there. So Morgan, you mentioned identity. Um, you became really a household name in this space for calling out a lot of the concerns around identity and, and privacy of personal information in particular uh, around healthcare.gov, back for those of us who remember uh, how that unfolded. Where are we with with data privacy, why is it that that's such a huge challenge for state and local governments? Is there any any good news to report with respect to uh, security of personal information? Ten years ago, there were very few, if any, chief privacy officers. Now we're seeing a big trend in state and local government to get chief privacy officers to address the issue, even though it's kind of a corollary to it. But when you look at GDPR, the general data protection regulations that come out of the EU, that has had an impact too on how states have looked at the issue of privacy. Because believe it or not, little country like uh, the Netherlands has been able to shape global policy because they do a lot of the policy development for GDPR. So the Googles and the Microsofts of the world and their collection of information have actually changed because of the regulations that have come out of the work that the, the Dutch folks have done. You know, one of the issues of privacy, especially when it comes to uh, state and local government and the information they collect, they collect some of the most sensitive information, whether it's from law enforcement or healthcare or tax information, things like that. We're, we're collecting lots and lots of information. And the challenge has always been with you have when you have government that's supposed to be transparent, how much information do you actually share with the public? And how do you keep things private? People confuse security and privacy, two totally different things. Privacy is a policy. Privacy defines what you want to keep private, what you want to share, what you don't want to share. And security is one of the mechanisms you use to enforce that policy. So you might have great privacy policies, but if your security isn't up to par, you know, that you can't enforce those policies. So we're seeing uh, the right to be forgotten, you know, uh, don't track, don't sell my information that's coming out of California. So we're seeing some things change. But the biggest challenge when it comes to privacy or working a lot of this, it comes to the issue of breaches. When somebody has a data breach, there are 50 different states. There are 50 different laws basically on how we handle data breach, what's notification, right? So if something happens in Georgia, uh, like what happened uh, with one of the credit scoring companies, when that happens, which law do they follow? Is it Georgia? Is it Texas? 
Texas, is it California, is it New York? It becomes playing 4D or 5D chess. So at some point, I think there needs to be kind of like we have national uniform traffic control, you know, manuals, a stop sign is red, no matter which county you're in or what state you're in. At some point, we're going to have to rationalize that because it, it becomes very difficult to spend appropriately and defend privacy when you have to spend and figure out, okay, if it's this state, we have to do this. If it's this state, we have to do this. Why spend all this money where we could actually rationalize it, bring it back down, say, let's do it one time and then do a better job of protecting the things we're collecting. The Infrastructure Act contained at least a billion that went to to states and local governments specifically for cybersecurity. Are you seeing any anything good coming from that yet? So recently, um, I was out at the West Virginia Digital Government Summit, uh, one of the, the one of the last ones of the year that the center or that eRepublic did, and actually talked to some of the folks from CISA, the uh, Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, part of DHS, and talked to the grant people from the state of West Virginia. And we're seeing a lot of activity with people getting the money. But here's the problem, though. A billion dollars sounds like a lot until you realize there's 50 states, 3,200 counties, 19,000 cities, right? So how does that money get out there? How does it flow appropriately? And it's not the issue of the money. And I'm glad you mentioned that. It's not the issue of the money. You know what the real issue of the money is too? It's the issue, are we investing it in the right things? Are we spending it on the right things? In other words, if I spend $1 here, can I spend down $10 in risk on this other side? Or am I am I almost just pass, is it pass through? Is it, am I just buying stuff? Let's figure out what is it, what does success look like? What does an outcome look like? And then let's develop our, our approaches, our grant requests to meet that. And I'll tell you, the whole thing of buying yesterday's technology today, you can't be buying outdated legacy technology and expecting it to solve the problems of tomorrow. We, we've got advanced threats. We've got uh, things are changing faster. I know we're going to talk about AI here pretty soon. We're going to talk about machine learning. We're going to talk about all the things that are changing. Simply buying what you bought five years ago does not cut it. We've got to modernize our, you were talking about infrastructure. I think you can patch all the holes you want on a bridge, but pretty soon you got to replace the bridge. At some point, we've got to replace the underlying infrastructure so that everything built from that is solid. And that's been part of my biggest concern. You, you don't rip and replace the internet. You don't rip and replace networks. I mean, you do things in segments. So part of it is what's the strategy around it? What are we doing to really affect an outcome? For me, I'm more based about what is it you want to achieve and are you doing the right things to get to that goal? Like, let's take a football analogy. If my goal is to score a touchdown, every play I've I'm running better be advancing me down the field, right? You don't run a play just to run a play. You run a play to get yardage, you know, et cetera. So kind of what's our strategy around that? And I think sometimes funding gets into, we have this money, we got to spend it on something as opposed to, well, before we get the money, what's our plan for the money? Do you, do you think some of that might be a, a capacity issue with, with state and local governments? I mean, we, all, we always hear about how they can't compete with the, they have trouble competing with the, the private sector on talent. Is that is that part of what's going on? Uh, absolutely. You've got the huge, uh, hum you've got a human capital issue. I was talking about this when I was doing keynotes at some of the digital government summits, talking about the silver tsunami. You know, look at me, look at my gray hair out in the wind again, right? <laughs> Just blowing around. But you've got a lot of people that are retiring out of state and local government. And what we've seen is the number of jobs in state and local government is going up, but the number of people applying is going down. So where are they going? They're going to the private sector. That doesn't mean that the people in state government aren't as smart. They are. But to your exactly to your point, it's the, it's the issue of resources. That's why when we start thinking about what is it we're doing, what is it we're investing in? Are we investing in those technologies that's going to allow us to scale our ability to solve problems like the use of artificial intelligence, automation? Can we automate things that normally we used to hire people to do, like open up an email, take a spreadsheet, dump the information from here to here? We don't need to do that anymore. I don't want to say it's like an Amazon warehouse, but there are certain things 
things humans are better at should be doing because they're better at it still cognitively than machines are. But but if it's just a matter of lifting something, moving it over and setting it down, robots are far more efficient at that. We've got to put our minds to solving bigger problems. So I think you're seeing a lot more collaboration between the public and the private sector in terms of managed services providers, managed security service providers to where they say, if you're a state or a, a government, you should focus on running the business of government. Don't try and become an expert on running IT and building. Remember the days we used to do that? Well, I have my own servers. I've got this. I've got my own on-premise stuff. Man, a lot of money went into standing up duplication, you know, uh, as opposed to let me get better at the process of government. Let me start applying our thoughts to that. Look, AI is not going to replace jobs. AI is going to actually create more jobs because we're going to find more things we can do with the data that we're collecting, uh, with the services that we can provide. We haven't even begun to scratch the service on how we can provide additional services and capabilities to constituents, to citizens, uh, you know, through the use of these things. But to your point exactly, it is a competition for talent. It's not always about the money. When they look at it, money sometimes ranks around sixth, seventh, or eighth, maybe. But I think it's it's redefining the mission. Why am I here? Very few places to where you can affect societal change the way you can in government through the right policies, through building programs. But it's the mission, right? So I think it's a marketing issue. You know, are we marketing to the right people with the right message to get them involved in coming into government? Even if it's only for five years, imagine what we could do if we got a lot of people coming in for five years with that enthusiasm. At least they would say, I'm going to be here for five or six years, but for while that time I'm here, we're going to make a lot of change. Now you might have a little more churn, but you know, at some point we've got to redefine what it means to work in government. Where do you think that talent should come from? Is that growing people from within states and localities? Is that loaning folks from the private sector like you were suggesting? Is there a sort of whole skill set that needs to be developed that we should be thinking about developing it elsewhere? Like where, where does that human capital come from? I think it's out there. I think what we have to do is get past this parochial notion that if you're going to work for the Commonwealth of Virginia, you have to be in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I was doing a digital government summit. I won't say which state it is on the uh, East Coast because I'm not sure this person, this CIO would want want this to be widely known, but uh, there is a state that was out there. They actually have people working for them that are in different time zones. Sometimes you got to go to where talent is. And I will tell you, there are talent pools out there. Work is no longer something, or is no longer a place you go. It's something you do. The internet has no concept of distance. So where you do it from becomes less relevant. Now I know from a political standpoint, they're going to say, well, you know, it's a tax-based issue or we want people who are, you know, getting paid by the Commonwealth of Virginia to be in there. That's, that's different if you're a firefighter, if you're, there's no, and a cop, you know, an emergency medical technician. It's very hard to do nursing when you have to have be there with the patients when you're a cop, you know, when you're a firefighter. Certain jobs require you to be there. But I think at some point we're going to have to rethink what the workforce looks like, what it means to work for somebody. And and I think part of the talent pool is I think I think there is a huge amount of talent out there. It's just redefining how we think about how we hire, how we train. And it may be one of those things to where it becomes a, a public-private partnership, you know, a PPP to where, hey, we're going to work with you to develop talent in this area. Uh, maybe it's Appalachia, maybe it's Texas, maybe it's Kansas, you know, where I'm from originally. A lot of smart people out there, but they just, because they don't live like here in Northern Virginia, they don't normally get access to this whole bevy of companies and, and opportunity out here. Well, instead of making them come to the opportunity, what if we bring the opportunity to them? What if we rethink about how we do this? And But under, to underpin that, which we'll talk as well to later, you have to have privacy, you have to have security, all of those things if you're going to have a remote workforce. We started learning those lessons with COVID, but I think the lessons of COVID can teach us, hey, not everybody has to work here to work for the agency. 
That was probably the thing I heard most, the, more than maybe even just the the political ickiness of having um, someone who's a non-resident work for the government is all of those cybersecurity concerns. I mean, as you said, we learned a lot through COVID, but is there, have states and localities made any kind of tangible progress in that area? Are there any places that you would you would point to to say that, you know, this this place is on the right track or they have a good idea? Um, not at the risk of offending the other 49 states or, you know, other, but I will tell you, one of the advantages, and Justin knows that one of our advantages of doing this work for the Center for Digital Government with the Republic, we get access to a lot of state CIOs, a lot of uh, local CIOs. And when I go to these digital government summits and I talk to these folks, what I'm saying is great ideas because they're looking at the problem. They're saying, how do I solve my problem here? Their solution won't work in California. California solutions won't work in Florida, right? But it's all about what can I do to solve my problem here? And I'm seeing a lot of creativity. I'll tell you what, procurement is one of the biggest areas for reform that kind of came out of COVID. If we can, if we can solve a lot of this procurement issue about how we buy technology, how we buy services, make things quicker, faster, better, um, you're going to get to that point of where then working remotely or who's doing it good. It's not going to be an impediment. I know we did a uh, webinar with state of Oklahoma. Uh, the governor there brought in some people from the private sector to be like state CIO and stuff. And they brought in, they're thinking about how we do it in the private sector. Let's make a decision. Let's make it quick. You know, We'll evaluate things, but let's make a decision and then let's start executing. So things that normally took $10 million in two years took a million and a half dollars and three months. So what what does that mean to the the taxpayers out there? Look, I'm a taxpayer. I'm offended when I see money being wasted. You're just telling me you saved eight and a half million dollars. So at some point I kind of go, I really don't care where they're working. I don't care if they live in Iowa or Kansas. You're saving me eight and a half million dollars. My taxes go down and I get better services. What's not to like about that? But I think but I think the issues of uh, security, are we there where we need to be? No, absolutely not. Not not across the board. But I will tell you, from where we were five years ago, we've made uh, orders of magnitude improvement uh, based on where we were. Some of that is because of the federal money that's out there. But some of it's simply because people start realizing cybersecurity can't be a bolt-on afterthought. I mean, you don't buy cars today without airbags, without anti-lock brakes. Can you imagine going into a dealership, buying a brand new car, and they say, well, you know, uh, the airbag's optional, seat belts are optional, anti-lock brakes are optional? No. So that's why we need to look at how we do things now. This it needs to be inherent. It needs to be part of it. And once we get to that point where it's the bedrock of everything we build, all of, a lot of these issues start solving themselves. Getting to the back to the money for a second, though, but I think one of the biggest, I guess, hurdles, complaints, depending on who you are, regarding cybersecurity investment and investment in tech is that it seems to cha- it changes every five seconds every year. And uh, governments tend to buy stuff and then obviously hang on to it for a long time. And that's it's hard for for local officials and, and for public finance officers who are um, getting these requests from from their cybersecurity uh, information officers. How do you how do you like what would you say in terms of that conversation, that translation? I mean, governments are never going to be up to speed on all the latest tech. So how do you kind of pick and choose in a way that's way that's manageable? Yeah. Um, so it goes back to what you're saying, Justin, earlier. When I testified for Congress, I stole this line from one of the members of Congress, and I've used it ever since. He says, in government, we never find the time and money to do it right, but when something happens, we find the time and money to do it over. Go Again, it goes back to, I say it goes back to procurement, right? It's the difference between capital expense and operational expense. CapEx items tend to be big. So if you, in the days when they used to buy big hardware and you had to wait till it amortized, you know, and then you couldn't get rid of it until that was done. Now with cloud-based stuff, it's a subscription. As So if you're in Amazon, if you're in Google, if you're in Azure, as the security changes there, as things change, it changes on the fly. So you get the benefit of those improvements. So it's looking to those areas. Where can we 
I don't want to say future-proof because that's another one of those things. It's like the new normal. I mean, I don't know how you future-proof anything because to your point, it changes you know, so fast, right? Having an investment strategy, and I don't want to say a spending strategy. I, I, I mean, I use the word deliberate, an investment strategy. Where are we going to invest our time? I can buy anything. I just can't buy everything. So for the things that I buy, what percentage of problems will it solve for us if we do a, B, and C versus D, E, and F, right? So some of it's just making the tough decisions because you will never get all the money you need to solve all the problems you have. So you're going to have to make some tough choices. It's a, it's uh, it's the same thing I used to use with uh, uh, thinking about living out in the country and you've got five buildings, you know, and the fire department, when they get there, it's got one pumper truck and it's only got enough water to save three buildings. You've got to determine which three buildings are the ones that are primary that you're going to save, realizing if the other two burn down, you've got a plan to rebuild those. And I'm not trying to be, well, something's going to happen. I guarantee you something's going to happen. Nobody is immune from this. Um, I sat in a national security briefing a few years ago with the assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice, a guy named John Carlin. He went out and talked to every Fortune 500 general counsel. Every Fortune 500 company has been breached. So if all the people with billions of dollars, if they get breached, what do you think the chances of you getting breached are? You know, So everybody's going to get breached at some point. There's going to be an incident. But the question is, have you invested in such a way with either incident? response services with your technology, it's like a fire safe. Have you invested in the right fire safe that will hold on for long enough until the troops get there to help you put out the fire you know, and solve this? So it's not a cookie cutter. I can't tell you that what you do in uh, Wheeling, West Virginia will be the same thing that you do in, in uh, you know, Keatesville, Maryland. We're just talking about, you know, some of the areas or even in Frederick, right? What Frederick does is different than Boonesboro. Everybody's different, but it's having an appreciation for the lay of the land. What do I know about it? And what are the big problems we have to solve? I can't solve every one of them, but I need to pick the right problems to solve. We've touched on AI a little bit already, Morgan, and uh, you have some, some ideas on this, I'm sure. Help us here paint you know, paint a picture of a world where generative AI is doing uh, good things for state and local governments. What does that look like? And then give us the doomsday scenario. Well, I'll tell you, generative AI, gen AI, and for those folks, you know, so you've got AI, which if you think of it from an algorithmic standpoint, a processing standpoint, that's one thing. But generative AI, it's uh, famously a lot of people heard about chat GPT. Chat GPT is only one variation of generative AI. I'm going to approach it from a couple of different things. So how about from a citizen standpoint, right? A constituent standpoint, rather than me having to be on a phone and go through a phone menu and ask, you know, and try and figure out all this stuff, what happens if I could get online and say, I want to know how I can apply for a permit and do this and just type it in plain language, right? And the system understands what you're trying to do. And now it spits out, here's the things you need. It can help you set up your appointment. I mean, I think there's a way to service constituents with generative AI that allows them to ask questions without having to be an expert at asking questions. You know, could be a tax issue. Hey, look, I live here. Um, I'm worried about my property taxes. I mean, has the levy gone up, mill levy gone up? What about this? Imagine asking all sorts of questions. And as opposed to tying up, somebody on the phone or two people on the phone, it can service you 24 hours a day. I can be up at three o'clock in the morning saying, am I late on my taxes? Or what about this? What about my property tax? Or, you know, I have a question about court, you know, whatever else. The ability for it to respond to you in natural language and give you the answers. There's a huge thing though that it, it provides too though, when we start thinking cybersecurity, this is how state and local governments kind of close the gap. It all goes back to um, when I moved out to Virginia, I was doing work in the justice intelligence community. But before 9-11, I was working in Bogota, Colombia, Plan Colombia. 
idea. You know, it was fun. You know, we're doing counter narcotic stuff, but then 9-11 happened. And then out of that, they started rethinking stuff how they did. And one of these things was called spiral acquisition and it came out of DOD. I still have the memo to today. And it says, sometimes we wait until we want things to be perfect before we release it. It said, sometimes it's good enough, right? So what it was really about is as the requirements go up uh, and our ability to meet those requirements were going down, you'd like, you'd have two divergent lines. It's how do we keep bending those things back based on requirements? How do we keep bending those things back based on needs? Where I see generative AI, the reason I say that, where I see generative AI absolutely helping with cybersecurity, for example, is the ability to, I don't need to uh, have either one of you folks be an expert, a tier three SOC analyst, you know, security operations center analyst that is well-versed in code and all this stuff. What happens if I can just hire people who understand how to ask really good questions and simply say, people who can say, show me all my machines that are connecting to China. And then all of a sudden it spits out an entire log says, this is the machine, this is who it's assigned to, here's been your traffic, right? It's a game changer when we start thinking about what generative AI can do, because that, that's going to help state and local. You don't have to worry then about, I don't have to hire what they call a tier three SOC analyst or somebody who's really good at this, trying to hire those away from private sector into government. You got a better chance of seeing God, you know, as they say, because it is very competitive and they pay really good in the private sector. What if I could teach tier one people, initial, get, get some people coming out of college who want to get their feet wet in cybersecurity. I can start training them on just how to ask better questions. Reverse side, how it can be used for bad. Here is a here is a logical problem I have with generative AI because what we want to do is be able to, we want it to be, you know, it's going to get good. It's going to be able to do deep fakes. It's going to be able to do fake pictures. What if I tell generative AI to create an image that can't be detected by AI? Now we're getting into the issues of digital identity. We're getting into the issues of fraud. We're getting into the issues of misinformation. One of the things I'm actually researching right now, I've been tracking a couple telegram channels that have uh, come out of Russia. And there's a belief right now that Vladimir Putin is dead and that he has a body double. And so the question is, I'm actually responding to a UK paper inquiry this week, is, you know, are we advanced far enough to where you could use deep fakes and stuff? On the one hand, you could put stuff out to the media that says, here's Vladimir Putin. He's still alive. He's saying all the things you would expect him to say. But then from a physical standpoint, you have a body double that's really not engaging, but is out there waving hands just enough so that people look at it and they go, well, he has to be alive because I've just watched him talk on TV, same mannerisms. And let me tell you, how bad it gets too. Um, you were asking about this too, Justin. I remember doing a piece for the news here a while back. I was asked to come on and uh, you know uh, do some analysis of what happened to a mother in Arizona who got a call to say, we're holding your daughter hostage, pay us $500,000. And then they played a snippet of her voice to say, mom, help me. You know, She says, mom, help me. She's crying. It fooled her mother. It was generative AI. They were able to take snippets of conversation because she was posting on Instagram and other places. So they got voice samples, took that and ingested it in and then used generative AI to, it basically told them, generate this person crying and saying, help me, mom, help me. How good does it have to be when it's good enough to fool a mother? about their child, right? So to your point, what's the doomsday scenario? It's We're going to get down to the point of where you're going to look at it and it's going to be even worse than what Edgar Allan Poe said when he used to say, believe nothing that you hear and only one half that you see. Uh, we're going to get down to the point to where you're going to go, can I believe anything I hear? Can I believe anything I see? And that's where nation states, that's where people are going to have the upper hand is when we can no longer trust anything we're being shown, anything we're hearing. Yeah, I mean, and state and local governments are already dealing, I mean, let's forget about the federal government for a moment, but in terms of trust issues from the public and, and people not believe, already don't believe what they hear, whether or not it's true, what you've described is, is, is quite frankly terrifying for for I think especially for local officials, officials who um, I guess are, are the closest on the ground to their constituents 
typically not partisan, but even local politics has been partisan as of, you know, the last several years. Um, and there's been, you know, the distrust has even filtered down to the local level to the, you know, to the to the biggest extent ever. So if that's what AI can do, is there a way that AI can combat that kind of thing? I guess AI can fight itself. Funny you mentioned that there is. It's called adversarial uh, AI. So basically, you can actually have AI compete against itself to look for as it generates things. But I'll tell you how how it's going to be used. So this is this is a good point to kind of jump off for a second. And say, look, there's AI, but then the underpinnings of it, the machine learning, that's the really important part. So AI, think of it as a framework, an algorithm, but it can't it can't do anything until it's trained to do something. You have to train it on data. So uh, just did a webinar about digital identity, and the company that's doing it is training it with with actual fraud that it's getting from its 2000 customers it's getting it from actual cases you know it's pulling in real fraud real emails that are fraudulent real voice you know, smishing and texting and spear phishing, all of these things that are fraudulent. So it's training it on that. So the algorithm is one part of it, but the underpinnings of it, the machine learning, that's where you really get into how can I really make it effective? If I showed you a picture and it had a hundred animals in there, it would be very easy for you to go through and pick out cats. Cognitively, we're really good at doing that. Computers are getting better at doing that. AI is getting better at doing that. It's very hard for, for AI to still match the cognitive capability of a human, but it can do things much quicker, faster, better. So if you give it known things, it can analyze and in, in a milliseconds come up and say, whoa, don't click on that link. That link's fraudulent. Here's why I know, because it's gone through and analyzed 3 million emails and looked for patterns. You're talking about what else can chat GPT uh, do? I remember the days of getting those emails from the Nigerian prince who's got you know $50 million. Well, you could tell it was bogus or some of these things are bogus because they the punctuation was wrong. The spacing was wrong. Not anymore. Chat GPT. Write me 10 emails um, that I can send out that ask you know the user to do this. Now you've got Chat GPT writing emails that are grammatically correct, proper use of English, proper spacing. You know, it's like it went through a, a Pulitzer Prize editor. There's two things to it, AI, you know, and then the machine learning or what they call large language models. That's where you get really good at making sure it can do those things. That's where I think state and local can really make an impact because train it on your data. And that's where AI can really help detect fraud, uh, detect identities. Uh, but AI is a force for good. But again, uh, the example I give, uh, Alfred Nobel, everybody knows him for the Nobel Prize Prizes. Uh, you know what Alfred Nobel actually invented for, quote, peaceful purposes? Dynamite. Yeah. So dynamite was originally invented for peaceful purposes. To uh, yeah, to to try to pull this together, uh, Morgan. So imagine uh, you have a newly elected mayor. They get elected on a commitment to cybersecurity. They're willing to spend some some resources, commit some resources to this. Uh, you're advising that mayor and that mayor's uh, staff. What do you tell her? Are the three big investments that can be made to move the needle on local cybersecurity in a detectable way for the purpose of running for re-election again in four years. Yeah, that's everything's about the next election, right? So, uh, and it, but but that's but hey, but guess what? That's why you're held accountable. You make a promise today, and if you don't deliver on it, then the voters have a chance to hold you accountable. I would say before you come up with those three things, you got to come up with a plan first. Too many people spend little time planning. I like the Stephen Covey model: begin with the end in mind. What is it you're trying to achieve first? Have an inventory of what what do you know? What do you have? You know what do you need to do? 
you need to have an in-depth discussion first about where are we most vulnerable? Do we have multi-factor authentication installed on everything? Are we encrypting all of our data? A lot of mayors don't want to get into the weeds, which is good. So it's really just looking at what is the outcomes you want. You're never going to, you will never get the amount of money we used to have years ago to do this stuff. In fact, you know, the, the danger with grants and getting grants is a lot of those are matching, but there are means to an end, right? These programs don't last forever. Just because you get a dollar from the federal government today doesn't mean in three years you're going to get that same dollar from them. So what's your plan when the money goes away, right? What's your plan to sustain your investments? But that's where I think we've got to do a lot more collaboration. Uh, make sure, you know, um, you're pushing people towards cooperative buying agreements. You know, if somebody's going in uh, on state contracts, you know, look at NASPO, the National Association of State Procurement Officials. Look at what they're doing. A mayor needs to go two questions deep. They don't have to be an expert. They just need to be able to go two questions deep because most politicians, uh, you know, I give them credit for this. They know when they're getting fed a line. And if you go two questions deep, you're going to know after about two questions if you're being fed a line or not. But here's the other thing. It comes from the military too. RAA, responsibility, accountability, and authority. You've got to enable your folks in IT, your folks in cybersecurity, your folks in the technology space. You just can't give them the mandate to go do this. You got to give them the responsibility and the authority to carry it out, the authority to make decisions, the authority to spend money. But start off with the plan. Start off under with an understanding of what's the problem. Bring the people in behind closed doors and get some good meetings going to say, okay, if, if, I, if I were a bad actor and I were going to attack tomorrow, where am I going to hit us? Thank you so much to Morgan Wright, Chief Security Advisor at Sentinel One and Senior Fellow at the Center for Digital Government. Wonderful conversation, Morgan. Thanks so much for sharing all your insights, scaring us a bit, uh, but all good things to know. We really appreciate you giving us some time. Uh, as Herring Truven says, I don't give them hell. I just tell them the truth. They think it's hell. So just tell the truth. <laughs> it is scary, but hey, guess what, guys? It's a problem that can be solved. Well, thanks again to Morgan. That was a really fun slash scary slash, uh, I don't know, conversation. Uh, he's a he's a great guest to have on, super knowledgeable. And it'll be interesting to see see what else unfolds with, uh, with what he's working on. The Ripped from the Headlines piece this week kind of touches on that, the um, the staffing issues that, that Morgan spoke about briefly. And the piece I pulled is from, it's from mid-November, it's from uh, Wired, and it's written by Amanda Hoover. The headline is, the government is now the hottest tech employer in town. And so there are a few things. Um, Meta, Google, Amazon, and other major tech, firm, tech firms have laid off some 400,000 people worldwide in 2022 and this year. And with the market yet to right itself and some people re-examining the role that big tech firms play in society, public sector roles, complete with perks like pensions and a warm, fuzzy, do-good feeling, this is a quote from the story, <laughs> um, are suddenly proving popular. And it speaks right into that, into what Morgan was talking about in terms of it doesn't have to just be about the money. There are other pieces of working for governments that that people in tech can really get behind. The story cites, of course, there's there's usual problems with that the governments have with hiring uh, tech workers, keeping pace with the private sector, um, roadblocks when it comes to innovating in their jobs. But it notes that the one trillion dollar infrastructure law also included a billion dollars in cybersecurity grants for state and local governments, um, and that interest in government jobs among tech workers has remained strong. And this is really interesting. So in late October, more than three thousand people read registered for a Tech2Gov career event, and 1,000 more had signed up for a waiting list. A couple examples of some recent big hires. Uh, New York State hired a former high-ranking employee from Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts to serve as the state's first chief customer experience officer. 
Baltimore's new digital services team hired a, a new director uh, from the private sector, and in fact, uh, three other employees also came on from the private sector, including a user experience designer. So this is very private sector tech approach to, to, to government. This story cites other examples of governments having hiring higher up positions from the private sector. And one last uh, thing that I want to point out from the story, the Porter interviews Jennifer Anastoff, who is the executive director at the Tech Talent Project. And she says, again, yeah, like very similar to what Morgan just told us, but she says, quote, it's not just layoffs. What I have definitely seen is folks pausing in the tech sector. This has been a moment where folks have started pausing and started thinking about where they can make the most difference. A lot of a lot of tie-ins there, but I think what speaks to me most is that fact that, I mean, for as long as I've been covering state and local governments, um, I've been hearing about how hard it is to keep private sector tech talent, how they can't compete with salaries. But this story to me says, as Morgan told us too, it's not just about the money. And and in fact, I think that the pandemic, that, that has been a conversation, post-pandemic conversation, just kind of in general, in terms of the quality of life and making a difference. And, and this to me, my takeaway from this story is this can be a real opportunity for, for local governments hiring hiring good tech talent. Agree completely. And it, of course, it's such an important set of issues for public money because this really has the potential to transform the way large parts of state and local government work, depending on where and when and how these technologies are applied. So there's probably nothing at the moment that has more reaching implications for what it costs to deliver public sector services than what we're talking about here is why it's so, so, so important to talk about it and why I'm glad that we're able to. It, it is interesting the way that the piece pulls together all these different components, the, the layoffs, the federal money, changing attitudes in tech and and describing it as a real opportunity for governments. I think that makes a lot of sense. The thing that really you know, struck me was, just as you were saying, was it's like, I think this has been the marketing pitch for a long time for governments, particularly state and local governments, when they would try to hire this kind of talent is to say, you've got a real opportunity to make a big difference here. At some point, uh, and I'm not, I'm not sure exactly when or why, but at some point that ethos seems to have really started to stick with a lot of people who are in tech and, and this notion of you can be a disruptor, but you can be a disruptor for positive social change is something that seems to be getting some traction. It sounded like kind of a cute, uh, whimsical thing to say back in the day, but it actually now sounds like there are people who really buy into that. And if you can offer up Again, it can be tough to offer up competitive salaries, but you can offer up a package of incentives to people who have these skills that is kind of just good enough and offers the opportunity to do something that they feel good about, um, then this could be a real win. So it, it's encouraging. It's interesting to see. And, and of course, has enormous public money implications just because it will touch just about everything that state and local governments do. Thanks again to our season two sponsors, Build America Mutual, MuniPro, Odyssey Advisors, and the Government Finance Officers Association. The Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy, where we are proudly produced by Hannah Burnick. You can learn more about the center and its work at munifinance.uchicago.edu. That's muni finance.uchicago.edu. You can learn more about Liz Farmer's work at her substack Long Story Short. That's Long Story Short. Thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Public Money Pod.